welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you had something here I think you wanted to ask me about? And Alex, yes, off the bat for our, our little just intro segment. Um, we were just now uh, enjoying some dinner and watching... Uh, Young Justice, one of the greatest like DC cartoons ever made. Sure, straight up. And got talking about voice actors, mm-hmm. and you brought up something that I didn't know, was that the standard union rate is if you pay a voice actor, you can get up to two characters from them before you have to start paying them extra. Correct. And that set my mind a-whirling. Um, we have not seen the Disney Plus show Obi-Wan. No. As far as I know, you have not seen a single second of Disney Plus Star Wars content. Nope. And I am in the middle of season two, so shame on us all, but... Season two of Obi-Wan? Of of, uh, Mandalorian. Okay, have you not watched Book of Boba Fett at all? No. Okay. I I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, But I do know, just through my tertiary being a nerd knowledge in obi-wan there is a character who is a sith villain called the inquisitor okay the inquisitor is a character who was originated in star wars rebels which was a star wars animated show that came out after clone wars yes in star wars rebels where the inquisitor is the primary antagonist the Inquisitor is voiced by the indomitable Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs is great. Jason Isaacs is amazing. Like, he, he's an amazing actor. If you don't know who he is, look him up. You'll, you'll recognize his face instantly. He's the bad guy in The Patriot. And I only say that because if you don't know who Jason Isaacs is, you'll get that reference. Hemstever, the Inquisitor, as he shows up in Obi-Wan, is not played by Jason Isaacs, Mm -hmm. which seems like a colossal misfire to me. He is instead played by an actor I've heard of somewhere named Rupert Friend. Okay. And I was trying to figure out and ask you if you knew anything about, like, any any behind-the-biz stuff about people who voice act for a character and then going on to play, or in this case, not play said character because unless jason isaac asks for all the money it seems like a phenomenal waste of like an opportunity you know here's the thing i would largely agree with you that it is a waste here's the point that i would probably posit to you there jason isaac's casting came down to whoever was the voice director and the casting director for Star Wars Rebels. Mm. So that was casting done where Jason Isaacs very likely came in, did an audition for probably like the executive producer, the showrunner, and the voice acting director. Um, And was cast based on that voice. The creative team for the Obi-Wan show is a different creative team. So inevitably, those are people who may have really enjoyed Jason Isaacs' performance, Mm -hmm. 
Um, we can't discount the possibility that they are under some editorial mandate from Disney to use this popular character. Sure. Like, that is just a very real possibility. But, um, but yeah, from there, you just... Maybe they wanted to go in a different direction when they were actually directing someone in live action. Um, I think of Saw Gerrera, that character. Sure. Who originated in, I was was it Rebels or the Clone Wars? I believe it was Clone Wars. Okay. So um, anyone who saw Rogue One, Saw Gerrera is a character played by Forrest fucking Whitaker. Hell yeah, he is. In the actual movie. <laughs> I do not remember who voiced Saw Gerrera in the show, but that character originated in the show and subsequently was played by Forrest Whitaker. Mm. Conversely, I don't think Ray Park has voiced any animated version of Darth Maul. Sure. And, and, and I see your point there. Just just for the record, Saw Gerrera is voiced by an actor named Andrew Kishino who I've never heard of, but wish him the best. Um, and and to your point there, for one thing, I know enough about Sagrera to know that he is supposed to be drastically older in Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, like something like 30, 40 years older. Yes, it is much later in the story. So that's A. B, I feel like you're punching up if you if you originate a a character and somebody who is no disrespect to Andrew Cascino grossly infinitely more famous than you I feel like you just kind of sit here and go oh what can you do um, and, and as for Ray Park um, I don't remember Darth Maul having a single fucking line in Phantom Menace. Like, he maybe has one. He had he had two lines, basically. His lines were like, yes, my master, right. and I and something else that was like, they're mine, or something like that. He had lines, just not many of them. Sure. I just looked it up. Sam Witwer was the one who voiced Maul in, um, in Rebels. Um, and then I'm going to look up... Solo, a Star Wars story. Ray Park played him physically, and Sam Witwer fucking voiced him. <laughs> Which I I can totally take. The thing is, like, maybe Jason Isaacs was like, no, I'm not doing your stupid fucking little cartoon movie thing. I'm going to keep making war movies, because that's what I, Jason Isaacs, want to do. Maybe he pulled an Idris Elba and went... This is stupid and dumb, and I'm not going to do it. If that's the case, fine, and I'll totally accept that. But, like, my point is Jason Isaacs could play this character that Rupert Friend um, took over just as well as Rupert Friend could, in my estimation, having not seen the show. And... Unlike any other example we've listed, that one just has me sitting here going, like... You could have done this one, Jason Isaacs. The problem is that... Okay, so there's a couple factors involved here. It could be Jason Isaacs was never asked. That is entirely possible. Sure. And, you know, and, and it's possible that maybe he was asked and he said, no, I can't do a movie. A lot of voice actors do voice acting work because 
of the freedom that it gives them. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. When Diedrich Bader played Batman in Batman the Brave and the Bold for three seasons, yeah. a big thing... And Diedrich Bader has an on-screen acting career. He's been in some pretty solid movies. He was on the Drew Carey show for, like, I think six or seven seasons. Mm. But he explicitly said that gig for him was great because those were the first three years of his kid's life. Yeah. So he was like, I could collect this really solid paycheck for being the lead in this animated show. And I had so and I and I had so much time to take care of my child beyond that. Because I'm pretty sure his partner works like a real people job. <laughs> Right, yeah. So it's possible Jason Isaacs is just like, maybe he has something like that. Or again, it is possible, it is even possible that this role came up, Jason Isaacs fucking auditioned for it, and just didn't get it because the casting people decided not to go with him despite the voice acting experience. I don't know if I've ever told you about this, but Clerks had a TV show pilot. Mm-hmm. There was a TV show that came out that like they they tried to do for yeah for based on the movie Clerks and it was all the same characters. It was none of the same cast. Fucking Jim Brewer plays Randall, Jeff Anderson's character. Right. Jeff Anderson auditioned for this show. And when he auditioned, he auditioned for Dante because they had already cast Jim Brewer, who at that point was an up-and-coming comedian, as Randall. And they still said no. Sure. You have the opportunity to cast the guy who originated a role in the movie. And those of you who haven't seen Clerks, fucking Randall, as played by Jeff Anderson, is an iconic character. You're gonna do a TV show based on this movie. Admittedly, without even any consultation from anyone who worked on that movie. But you're gonna do this shit, and you have the best character in the entire movie played by the actor who crea- who originated that part, and you're not gonna give it to him because you want to give it to Jim Goddamn Brewer. I mean, at, at that point, the most you could say is he wasn't a racist yet. It's just, there's no accounting for taste when it comes to casting. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, just to answer my own question and close this loop, Jason Isaacs has been interviewed and his answer is, I've signed so many NDAs, I'm not allowed to talk about anything. Take that for whatever the fuck it's worth. And then bizarrely... Rupert Friend, when he was interviewed about it, said that he purposefully did not watch any of Star Wars Rebels, any of his character source material. Which, like, I get if you're playing fucking Herbert Hoover or something, or you're 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 watching, you're playing J. Edgar, you're not gonna watch the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. But like, when it's a Star Wars property. And this character is in the show, presumably because he was a popular aspect of the other thing. To sit here and go, nah, I'm doing my own fucking new thing. Just seems like a misfire. I don't know. It's probably going to be like three years before I watch Obi-Wan. Welcome to Love-Hate Relationship. (laughs) And this is for three people. But if Cameron Monaghan's Kyle Kestis shows up, I will absolutely watch that shit. I fucking love you.
Welcome to Love Hate Relationship. Thank you for bearing with the voice actor Star Wars update minute. Um, that is not usually what we do on the show. Normally what we do is we talk about any old, any old thing that comes into our minds. Then one of us talks about something we love. The other one talks about something they, we hate. And then we take yours and the Internet's relationship questions. That's right. And this time, uh, Andy, you have the love. So you are starting us off. I have the love and a bit of a, a sad note. I mean... At this point, the way we do these in advance, probably most people who care know. But my love today is on the late Tim Sale. And he is late as of less than 36 hours ago. Yeah. Uh, we found out yesterday that we lost Tim Sale. I texted you immediately and was like, are you sitting down? I have bad news. Maybe oversold it, but I don't think I did. You really didn't, because you know that I'm a Tim Sale fan. Exactly. And, and as am I, he's deeply beloved. And and I'm a guarantee most of our audience doesn't know who Tim Sale is. There's like yeah. probably two of them who do. Absolutely. What's up, Matt? <laughs> yeah, right. So for the rest of you, I want to start by saying it, it feels deeply inappropriate not to take an opportunity to talk about this legendary comic book artist today you know we we just learned about his passing it came as a huge shock not only to you and me but to comic fans all over the world this was basically my twitter feed last night was people posting their favorite tim sale pages and like you know wishing respects for the man yeah ages ago um i think in the episode where i talked about how much i hate rob liefeld mm -hmm. we were discussing prolific comic book artists we like we were trying to talk about like the good as opposed to the bad and i think at the time the only one i know i really name dropped was bill sinkevich which i look back on with a degree of shame because it means in that moment at least i had forgotten about tim sale um, just to give the smallest background, he was born in Ithaca, New York in 1956 and moved to Seattle in 1962 and began working as an artist in the 1980s. He had a lot of tutelage under John Busima, who is a prolific comic artist in his own right oh, yeah. of, of, you know, days gone by, um, and eventually formed a collaborative partnership with writer Jeff Loeb. Mm -hmm who maybe two or three more people listening might recognize the name Jeff Loeb. He's certainly done a little bit more. If you are a nerd for 80s movies, this man, uh, Jeff Loeb, if I remember correctly, he was, I think, the executive uh, uh, the executive producer, uh, or no, writer of Teen Wolf, as well sure. as Commando. Um, and then he just, like, produced a shit ton of of like superhero TV, including Marvel shit and heroes and Smallville. And he's the reason daredevil was daredevil. Like Netflix is daredevil straight up. And he is, he is great in his own right. But, uh, but we're focusing on Tim sale here, but yes, you kind of can't talk about one without talking about the other. You very much cannot talk about Tim sale without talking about Jeff Loeb. I mean, all of his most well-known work sales, well-known works are, you know, well-known Jeff Loeb written books. So probably the one that springs to mind first and immediately for people is Batman The Long Halloween. Which is my favorite Batman story. And I think it's like everyone will agree across the board is a top three solid locked-in Batman story. Yeah. Um, 
Slightly less well-known, but no less beloved, is Batman Dark Victory, which he worked on. Superman for All Seasons, which I have not read, but I have heard many people say is one of the greatest Superman books ever written. I have read, and I don't generally love Superman stories as a rule, but it is solid. It sure. is very well done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then on the other side of things, he worked on the Marvel Color series, again, with Jeff Loeb. Which I love the Marvel Color. I can talk about the Marvel Color series. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and for just to cap it up, that included the books Spider-Man Blue, Daredevil Yellow, Hulk Gray, and Captain America White. I have Hulk Gray sitting on my shelf fucking right now. I know you do. <laughs> so, like... Just to go off of my notes or go away from my notes for a minute here and talk about that, like the core takeaway is that this man is an artist who hit on the biggest aspects of both of the biggest comic book lines. This man drew a lot of people's favorite Batman. He drew a lot of people's favorite Superman. He drew a lot of people's favorite Hulk. Mm -hmm. He drew an amazing Spider-Man. Daredevil's weird-ass yellow costume was weird and nobody understood it, and Tim Sale made it work. That was some old Kirby shit. Like, that would that, because Daredevil was a stand, I'm, I'm sorry for all the in-depth comic talk. Um, those of you. Those are the people who listen to us who aren't comic fans. But I just need to say this. Like, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's earliest Daredevil comics, like, I've read so I, I've read a fair number of those old 60s comics. A lot of them don't hold up. Daredevil's origins are interesting. Yeah. But by and large, that costume was fucking ridiculous. Yeah. However, Daredevil Yellow, which is... A lot of the um, a lot of the Marvel color series are framed around like letters to someone. You know, it's a letter to. It's the superhero telling their origin, but it's also always around the framing device of this letter. Yeah. And Daredevil's is this letter to Karen after she's already died, and it is so fucking beautiful the way that it's done and, and that comes down a lot to Loeb's writing yeah but the framing device is Daredevil swinging around the city and telling his origin story as he writes this letter to Karen his love interest and like I'm a Daredevil fan and I know what that relationship means to that character and the way that Sale in particular sells this this story and this framing device and the way that it goes around is so beautifully done. Right. And so the thing to say to tie it in, yes, all of these works are written by Loeb and it, it, it you cannot take one away from the other when talking about these specific works, yeah. I don't think, because it is Tim Sale's art style that I think makes this so iconic and, and makes all of these works a step above other great works that maybe just fall a little bit short in the artist. But like this man could draw something that was equal parts, just insanely cartoony and exaggerated facial features. 
His Joker has like literally a hundred teeth. Like disgusting teeth. And like a chin that shoots out eight inches past the rest of his face, shit like that. His Superman has a giant head and a tiny face. <laughs> and it manages to work. It does. <laughs> um, We're looking, I, I, I did something a little different and I brought visual aids. And so on the table in front of us, I've got my copy of Long Halloween and Dark Victory. I, I pulled open to just a shot of Tim Sale's drawing of Harvey Dent Two-Face. And you were even just commenting. I was. Before we started recording, I was flipping through this book. And I was, and I was talking about this book in particular. Um, any of you who want to know me, you should really read the Batman Long Halloween. Like, that book is such an incredible, incredible graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, not least of which for Tim Sale's drawing, but... The page that you opened up to, it's Two-Face sitting in a chair flipping a coin. And the way that I commented on this to you, Andy, um, is, uh, you know, if any of y'all aren't Batman fans, the whole point of Two-Face is that half of his face was horribly, horribly marred in an accident. So he's always depicted with various levels of damage on that side. In, you know, The Dark Knight, Aaron Eckhart plays this character, and he's severely burned on one side. And it's very, very well done. In in other versions, it's more like, like I think of the fucking uh, Batman Forever version. And that one, it's it, it almost, it almost looks like half Ivan Ooze on one side. Yeah, he's got a face full of silly putty. Yeah, it's fucking stupid. But um, this version that I look at here... Um, and you could Google, like, Two-Face Tim Sale, uh, and you'll probably find this. Like, in the panel, he's like, that's my girl, Porter, that's my girl. His version of Two-Face, the face, the marred side of it, it is cartoonish. It looks like brain matter. And it's visceral, and it's gross. It looks like it smells, and it's uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's cartoonish enough that it doesn't have that same verisimilitude of the Aaron Eckhart version. It looks less violent. In a, less violent in a way that makes it more accessible to a general reader. Yeah. Like, I could show this to a squeamish person and they will get the idea that this is horrifying without physically being disgusted to look at it. Right. And that's such an incredible line to walk. And Sale lived in that line. Right. And that's, yeah, again, to go back, it is it is this insane mix of, on the one hand, it is so much more realistic looking than a lot of stuff. And then at the same time, it is almost surreally cartoonish. In a lot of ways. You know, the other famous um, image from Long Halloween is there's an image of Batman's entire rogues gallery. I've, I've pulled it up here. It's Mad Hatter, Joker, Solomon Grundy, Penguin, Poison Ivy, Scarecrow, and Catwoman. Penguin is fucking standing on the table and his top hat barely comes up to Joker's head where Joker is sitting next to Penguin Catwoman is, like, insanely jacked. 
Solomon Grundy is just this brick shithouse refrigerator-sized thing in the background. Admittedly, every time Sale drew a muscular individual, they always kind of looked weirdly blocky. Hulk yeah. Gray, like, he fucking looks like Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. Yeah. Which was a deliberate choice. Yeah. But he he has that, like, cylindrical blockiness. Right. And, and to just speak one more time about the art, a panel I'd never seen, because I've never actually read Hulk Gray, but a panel I You're saw... You're fucking borrowing that tonight. Okay. Um, a panel I saw that somebody posted on Twitter in, like, a commemoration, it's it's... It is beautiful in ways that, like, you point to when you need to make the argument that comics are art. But it's this two-page spread of a mesa, uh, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Southwest American Desert, mesa. And the mesa, the rock formation, takes up, like, 60% of the two pages and then tucked away in the corner, you see Hulk sitting on a cliffside. I think he's talking to like a bird or something. And he's saying all alone, just like Hulk. And not having read the book, not having to need to read the book. I stared at this and was like, this is poignant and exceptional and beautiful. And you can't even say it's that much of the writing because there's only one sentence of dialogue. It is this phenomenal image capturing this thing and that's the thing that sale did um it, it bears mentioning because we brought up the movie uh both the dark knight christopher nolan's the dark knight and matt reeves's the batman mm -hmm. which i think most people would agree are easily the top two batman films made to date i'd put 89 in that conversation but those are the, those are your top threes sure both The Dark Knight and Matt Reeves' The Batman borrow heavily from The Long Halloween with regards to certain plot elements. And while it can't be said enough, Loeb and Sale are kind of tied at the hip when it comes to these stories. I think the first thing anyone thinks of when you say The Long Halloween and they know what you're talking about is the artwork. Yeah. I, I told you, like, when you, when you pitch Tim Sale, the first thought I have, and this... This image has stuck with me since the very first time that I read this book. And again, this is my favorite Batman story is The Long Halloween. The very first image that you see when you open up the very beginning of the book is a picture of Bruce Wayne. And he does not look like Bruce Wayne. He really doesn't. I didn't know the first time that I looked at this that it was Bruce Wayne. I only found out like as I was reading through it, but it's a picture of Bruce Wayne standing in a dark room in a tuxedo and the shadows on his face look like the extensions of his fucking nose that he has in the Batman cowl. And he just says, I believe in Gotham city. And he's in a dark room. It's mostly black. There's shades behind him. It's, it's almost a minimalist painting when yeah. I look at it because there's so much black in it. Well, and the tuxedo blends into the dark black shadows of the rest of the room. Yeah. So, so his head is kind of just floating. So all you have is like the shades drawn on the window behind him, his head, 
his like lapels and what the shirt inside there. You have a glove and the outline of a hat and a little bit of a handkerchief and the text. It is the most minimalistic, dark, perfect opening to this incredible story that I so dearly love. And when I think of Tim Sale's art, I think of this fucking panel. I don't think of Hulk first. I don't think of Daredevil. I don't think of that rogues gallery shot. I don't think of Joker with 90 teeth. I think of Bruce Wayne in a dark room where I can, one, two, three, four, five basic elements of this photo. It's so minimal, but it is so evocative, and it has been burned into my brain for a decade and a half, Andy. Absolutely. And it is wonderful, and it is incredible. And side note, we were recently told um, by friend of the show, Matt Calder, that we really should be filming these. (laughs) The episode where I pull out a couple of goddamn comic books Uh, is very evocative of that point. Yeah. Um, We have a YouTube channel. We haven't updated it in fucking forever. Indeed. Um, But no, it, it, it cannot be stated enough what a true artist this man is and i didn't go through his entire you know collected works um he's got a wolverine and gambit mini series he worked on the comic book grendel which is like this super indie dark comic the man has done other stuff and for what a titan of the industry tim sale was his list of works is incredibly short, I feel like. It, it is a very small output. Yeah. I, I have to wonder. He must have had a different day job. Well, I think so. And I think the man considered himself a capital A artist first and foremost. Yeah. Um, this is a very niche point, but it is one of my personal favorite things about him. Um I discovered Tim Sale not through comic books, but through television, first of all, because before I had ever even heard, really, of The Long Halloween, I was watching the NBC superhero drama Heroes. Which was a show that I never really got into. Which is fine, because it's like four seasons and only one of them was good. But, (laughs) But what a season. What a good season. No, I mean, the thing with Heroes, this is a conversation from another point. That is probably the single biggest casualty of the NYC writer's strike of like 2006 or whenever it was. Yeah. Um, but Heroes aired, like I said, in 2006, which is just before the true superhero craze media landscape that we are now in the middle of really ha- started happening. Yeah. Like, you had, like, Iron Man, and I think the first Thor movie was out, and that was about it. It was this pre-superhero thing, and the first season, again, is phenomenal. Like, this was trying to take up the mantle that Lost was setting down on the table. Yeah. And became this cultural touchstone water cooler show to talk about. And I truly believe that Part of the reason we love superheroes as much as we do now is that Heroes, the TV show, paved a lot of the groundwork. 
It's cer- all these other properties. It certainly it, it took its place in the cultural consciousness in a really I, I feel like 2000s X-Men which doesn't get enough credit for setting this whole thing off. Yeah. 2000s X-Men happened and then it has just bolstered from there but Heroes really became a weekly extension of this. Mutant X tried to be that yeah. and Heroes succeeded. Right, until the writer strike made it unwatchable. Yeah. But prominently featured in the good season of Heroes is a character whose whole deal is he gains these precognitive powers and he can see into the future. But he's also a capital A artist. And so every time he has a precognitive vision, he paints it. And all of the art in Heroes was Tim Sale's actual art. And it's wonderful. And it was this like thing that just unlocked in me, oh, this is amazing. This is incredible. This is really stunning, captivating stuff. And it introduced me to this person where I then go, oh my God, what else has this guy actually done? Because I heard an actual comic artist did the actual art for those segments. And that's how I discovered Long Halloween and Spider-Man Blue. But not whole great because I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, in researching this episode, I was struck by how little Tim Sale has actually done for what was a 30, 40 year career in the industry. Can, okay. I'm going to posit something to you. And I don't know if it's going to be meaningful to you or not. But I heard you singing Running Up That Hill earlier today when we were hanging out. Yeah. I will posit to you, Tim Sale is the Kate Bush of American comics artists. For those, like, okay. Sell me, yeah. Well, no, okay, so for a lot of you, um, I imagine for a number of you, you only just learned about Kate Bush now that um, her song, Running Up That Hill, A Deal With God, became super popular because of Stranger Things. Those of us who are either English, which is where Kate Bush has had most of her popularity, and Kate Bush is huge in England. She's She's had a few hits here and internationally, but she is huge in England. Um, I've been familiar with Kate Bush for a while. Kate Bush has, um, I'm looking it up here, she has like eight, nine, she has like, I think nine or 10 studio albums. And she's been doing this shit since 1978. Like she has a 45 year career almost. And she has like nine or 10 studio albums. Her output has not been huge, but I can't think of many people who everybody from Susie Sue and the Banshees to Talk Talk to George Michael to Kanye West Mm. to Taylor Swift to MGMT to Radiohead have all claimed as a significant influence. But Kate Bush has been that.
Because to music nerds, Kate Bush is incredibly important. But her output is not... You can listen to all of Kate Bush's albums in a weekend without trying that hard. You could read all of Tim Sale's books. And, like, I'm, I'm pulling them up here. There's a shit with Jeff Loeb, and there's a short stories, his cover work. You could read everything he worked on in comics in less than a month, probably. Yeah. Like, if you bought it all digitally, you could probably read everything in a couple of weeks without trying that hard. But his influence, but his artistry, but the quality of that very small amount of work and for what he mean, what he means to later artists, yeah. for the stamp that he put on his own industry, which is underrepresented. I don't think people talk about Tim Sale the way that they talk about George Perez. Right. Or the way that they talk about Bushima. Or even the way that they talk about hacks like goddamn Liefeld. He was so important. He did so much quality work, and there's not a lot of it. But what there is is so solid. And yeah. so I have never, I have never seen Tim Sale artwork that I thought was bad. And I can't say that for a lot of. I can't say that of Dave fucking McKean, who I know you love. But I have seen Dave McKean books where I think the artwork is bad. Sure. I don't I've never read a book drawn by Tim Sale where I thought the artwork was bad. No, cuz I don't think he made one. Like to just to wrap it up, um he, Tim Sale's left an incredible mark on the industry and I I do think has gone on to inspire the the Jamie McKelvies and the Pepe Larazas if you listeners want two name drops of phenomenal um, artists working in the industry today. I see his influence in Cliff Chang's art and Paper Girls. Like, Tim Sale left giant ink-smudged fingerprints over the comics artist industry. Mm -hmm. And for the amount of minor work he did, towards the end, a lot of it was minor stories and variant covers for other books. Like... The entire industry is shaken and mourning him. And I cannot think of many other artists at least working as recently as Sale did who will get that kind of widespread widespread remembrance outside of like Alex Ross. Oh, yeah. So he's a phenomenal artist. Any book that is a, a Loeb and Sale book is worth your time. Or just even finding, like, I, I've looked up and seen online, like, Tim Sale was doing coffee table books of just his artwork, and now I fucking want one. Yeah. He's a phenomenal artist. If you are a comic book fan and you are unfamiliar with Tim Sale, you owe it to yourself to get educated. And if you are not a comic book fan, I challenge you to find Batman The Long Halloween and give it a shot, and I bet you'll become at least more of one than you were before reading it. I hate a lot of things. I hate yeah. so many things. <laughs> I know you do. I literally had the idea for this podcast. This whole shit was my idea, Andy. And I love The Long Halloween so much. And I am sad. We lost George Perez last month. 
We lost Tim Sale this month. And honestly, just just buy their shit. Buy the Judas contract and the long Halloween and then DM us with your tears. Straight up. Yeah. Speaking of tears, you want to get into your hate? Yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. Andy, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume you don't have much, if any, background on the subject. Maybe I'm wrong. So I will ask point blank. What do you assume a crisis pregnancy center is referring to just based on the name? Or if you do know what they are, can you give me your characterization of them? Yeah, and I'll, I'll be honest, you're not wrong with your initial assessment. I have very little experience with them, and I, I don't think I could tell you specifically what a crisis pregnancy center is, but by the name, what that immediately strikes me is an abortion clinic that is smart enough to not go by calling itself an abortion clinic, or maybe like a facility that offers similar services, but is accepted by the conservative elite. <laughs> That's what I think that those, those three words mean. I'm gonna fuck up your day right here. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Um, Andy, I'm just gonna say, honey, you are wrong. Okay. All right. We will get into this. My hate topic for this episode is crisis pregnancy centers. Um, I know for a fact John Oliver did a segment on this on YouTube uh, a couple of years ago. So y'all can feel free to check that out if you want uh, you know, more HBO organized version of this. But for our rambly bits of this, um, please continue. So... <laughs> Originating around the 1960s and ramping up their spread after the Roe v. Wade verdict in, uh, I believe that was 1973, crisis pregnancy centers are pseudo-health offices which present themselves as support centers for people in their local communities who are pregnant. According to the Vox write-up, I'll link below, I'll link in our show notes, there are about 2,500 of them operating in the U.S. as of March of 2020. Okay. While they do sometimes provide free of charge, charge, I'm going to use that word very explicitly, items and services like pregnancy tests, um, nominal amounts of diapers, bottles, baby clothing, um, some classes in things like family budgeting or infant care, and occasionally even some SDI testing, the primary purpose of crisis pregnancy centers is to perform anti-abortion outreach. So the opposite of what I said. We'll get into that. Oh dear. And I wanna, this isn't in my notes, but I wanna, I wanna offer a disclaimer here. Um, wherever you fall on the abortion debate, it is morally reprehensible to be okay with places lying to desperate pregnant people. Yeah. Whatever you think about abortion, that is not okay. And if you think it is okay, 
you are morally compromised. Why, Alex, you mean the notion that most uh, outspoken Republicans stop caring about the uh, child the second it's actually born? Oh, honey. A lot of Democrats don't care about <laughs> that child either. Fair enough. Continue. There is there is a anti-abortion pro-gun Democrat running in, I believe it's West Virginia right now. And they're perfectly fine to have that motherfucker running because they just want a D. And they can eat my asshole. With jelly or sir, I prefer sir. So why I hate crisis pregnancy centers. <laughs> to this end, crisis pregnancy centers frequently advertise themselves in ways that make them indistinguishable from actual abortion and reproductive health care providers. And when they encounter someone seeking abortion services from them, they do everything they can to dissuade them. So... In their advertising, they might call themselves something like, and I'm, I'm literally pulling this out of my ass. This is not me being sardonic. They might call themselves something like the family planning clinic. Mm. Or um, the pregnancy support institute. Sure. Something, something vague like that, but something that might make someone who is looking for abortion services, like, check them out. And their websites or their advertising materials or, their, or anything you find when you, like, say, Google them might not indicate to you that they do not offer abortion services. They might use phrases that are well understood often to refer to abortion, things like family planning or support for pregnant people. In some cases, they will even set themselves up near or even next door to actual clinics that offer abortions to try and trick people into going into them instead. Uh -huh. There was a um, uh, It Could Happen Here episode talking about crisis pregnancy centers where they interviewed a clinic escort. And this person literally had stories of being in front of an abortion clinic and there being a crisis pregnancy center next door to it. And what they would do is if they saw someone driving up with turn signals, they would have someone at the road like trying to wave them in to them because they happened to be on the side of the road where oncoming traffic was more likely to come in, what was gonna to come to them first. Sure. And they would try and wave the people into their parking lot so that they wouldn't go to the Planned Parenthood or whatever actual abortion clinic there was. Wow, that's fucking gross. Yeah. And then they try and get them inside, and again, they then use every resource at their disposal to try and stop people from pursuing an abortion. Mm -hmm. Their MO usually takes the form of lying to the people coming in about the risks of abortion, specifically spreading myths that it's linked to breast cancer. It is not. That it is linked to mental illness. It is not. And that it will result in future infertility. It does not. Abortion does not have any of those things happen. 
in any statistically significant degree. Mm -hmm. They also mischaracterize the means of abortion, making it sound more painful and risky and physically traumatic than it actually is. If I'm going to talk in just straight stats and numbers, you are more likely to suffer severe health risks, side effects, irreversible changes to the body or death from carrying a pregnancy to term than you are from having an abortion. Sure. That is not me trying to dissuade anybody who is pregnant from doing so, but just in terms of the actual medical risk, pregnancy is riskier than abortion. That has just... That is true of everything except for the most bare bones, wire hangers, horror story back alley situations that you've ever read about. Which, you know, only really happen when you make abortion illegal. Right. Besides the point. But the not, not besides the point. I'm I'm reminded of, and correct me if I'm getting any of the facts wrong, before this podcast was like a primary um, avenue of, of ways you spend your free time. Something that you did make a primary way you spent your free time was either writing or moderating a anti-abortion site. Am I remembering this wrong? Uh, no, I um, not an anti-abortion site. I used to work with uh, a fabulous organization called Abortion Chat. That, right. Sorry. Yeah. I, 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 of course, do not mean an anti-abortion. Yeah. Um, and, well, and the whole point of Abortion Chat, uh, it's run by my dear, dear friend, Lynn, um, who is a marvelous human being. Shout out to you, Lynn, if you ever see this um, or ever listen to this. But um, the point of Abortion Chat was that it really started off as uh, a weekly Twitter discussion where people would comment and talk about abortion-related subjects. Um, and we sought out different perspectives. The original idea for the site was that we wanted to present both sides of the abortion debate in like ways that would increase communication. Uh, that mission died because we could never really find an anti-abortion person who wanted to work with us long-term. <laughs> you don't say. Um, we did publish a couple of, like, a write-up or two from people with an anti-abortion stance who presented themselves with a fairly humane presentation of that. But, um, you know, it was real hard to do that. Sure. And and I loved my work with Abortion Chat. They were a fantastic. They are a fantastic organization. Um, it's and that is honestly the avenue that helped bring this so much to the forefront for me. Right. Exactly. And made this such an important issue for me because to me, again, whatever you think of abortion. There is an ethical standard here, and that ethical standard essentially is if you refuse to allow people to decide what to do with their bodies using the mechanism of the state, you are wrong. Yeah. Like, there is, if you think that it's murdering a baby, 
I don't actually care. Because if you force a human being to act as a biological host for another entity, even if it is another human being, you, you force someone to be that host against their will, and you use the mechanisms of the state to enforce that, the state has total control over you, your body, and everything about your life, and I do not want to live in the world where that is true. That state does not deserve to exist. And I will bring my anarchism into this, but I don't even need to. Sure. It's just a moral question. Right. So yeah, before this podcast, that was something that I spent a lot of time doing. And I spent a little time clinic escorting as well, um, where you bring people into the clinics who show up. And, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of people, like I, I did it out of Planned Parenthood. A lot of people were showing up for like pap smears and basic reproductive like health right? and gynecological appointments. And they would still have people screaming at them that they were going to hell for killing their baby and like, I'm here for a fucking pap smear. What's wrong with you? Yeah, because people are idiots. Yeah. But my job was basically to safely escort these people. And, and frankly, I'm a cis man who is, you know, somewhat muscular. Carries a blade. <laughs> I actually did left the blade in the... They had a rule that you, I could not carry weapons on me. Yeah, fair. So I had to... I, I kept the blade in the car during that. Okay. But, like... But, yeah. Like, the whole point is you have people escorting you. And, honestly, the most I would do is just say to people, like, you can ignore them. Don't worry about them. You're fine. Like, there were people who got into being supportive. I was just like, yeah, ignore them. They're not worth it. Like, sure. that was my approach. Sounds about right. Yeah. But the point of this is, for something like a crisis pregnancy center, it is an institutionalization of that anti-abortion message. It's the idea we get people in. And frankly, the people they're getting in, I, I want to be careful about this. Mm -hmm. Because the Vox write-up that I am linking in the show notes, um, and, I, and it's the only thing I want to link in here because I want to direct people to it. It's actually the most mild criticism of a crisis pregnancy center that I've ever seen. Most of the people interviewed for this article, this Vox article, they were there to basically, they wanted to carry their pregnancies to term. Very few people interviewed for this actually wanted abortion services. They were there because they were like, yo, I hear you give out diapers. Sure. I hear you can give me classes on how to, like, make my baby latch when, when they eventually come or how to change diapers or how to budget. Like, I'm here for support. Which, leading back to something you mentioned earlier, it sounds like a promise of that is the lure to get people in the door but I'm presuming you're not about to tell me that these services are actually widespread provided in the manner that they should be. The thing is, like, do will they provide you some diapers, some bottles, some, like, wet naps? Yeah. Will they offer you enough that it's going to make a long-term difference? Fuck no. Yeah. Absolutely not. Like, it is... It, 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 the actual services that they typically render are 
completely insufficient to actually make big differences in the lives of the pregnant people they're serving. I didn't put this in the notes, but it's in the article. A lot of these centers function on a point system. So the more times that you come to the, preg to the crisis pregnancy center, you attend classes, you get points, and those points are redeemable for baby blankets or onesies. I don't think this is the same thing that should be like on a Froyo punch card system. Exactly. Like, they don't present themselves as being, you know, WIC or being long-term, uh, being a proper social safety net. No. And they aren't. They don't provide anything significant enough for that. There was at least one instance of someone written about in this article who missed work because the required class for these additional services that she had to attend, she attended it rather than going to work because she didn't want to lose out on those little bit of little tiny bit of benefits. She ended up losing her job. Sure. And subsequently losing her apartment because she couldn't pay rent after losing her job. And it goes it maybe it doesn't go without saying, but the Lowest income or people with the most desperate need are often the ones I feel like who are predominantly seeking such avenues of support. And when these avenues of support brutally fail them, they are the ones who are hit the hardest. Yeah. And the majority of people in this article, the majority of people who go to these places and seek these services tend to be low income women of color. Sure. And those low-income women of color have also, by and large, reported things like heavily racist assumptions from the staff that they encounter. Because black women will go to this, these places and the staff there will assume that they are unemployed, that their father of this child is not involved in the picture, and just make these horrible racist-ass assumptions about sure. them. And it just, is it a good thing to give low-income pregnant people diapers and bottles? Yes. Sure. Requiring them to attend classes, which often, by the way, have weird religious affiliations to them. Most of these crisis pregnancy centers are religiously affiliated. Gasp. And most of these classes will have commentary about like what a woman's place is and how she should be home with her child while a husband works right how it uh, how abortion is a crime against god and all of this super christian centra centered ideology and in some cases like again Referring back to this Vox article, there's at least one occasion where someone interviewed for it was straight up triggered by some of the rhetoric that occurred in one of these classes where it was talking about this like visceral horror that is associated with abortion. I understand in a sick way the logic that follows this. People who think that abortion is killing babies go, well, you know, ends justify means. 
If we stop someone from having an abortion, we save a baby. Who cares if we lie to them? Who cares if we misrepresent things? Who cares if we traumatize someone along the way as we're trying to spread this message? And that is so fucking fucked. Like that. Well, the, the, yeah, the thing that always gets to me is the um, the lack of follow through with that thing, with, with that frame of mind. The whole thing of like the ends justify the means. We we certainly can't have a, a dead baby on our hands not another one we can't stand for it but then the village that it takes to raise that baby isn't there isn't there and we're the ones who were advocating for its existence in the first place in some cases you know in some cases not yeah um yeah it's it's fucked man and People in power are always going to be the ones to cry the loudest about this and do the least. As of yesterday, Georgia senatorial candidate Herschel Walker admitted that he had two secret children. <laughs> That's not funny, but I'm laughing. <laughs> it beats rage and crying and gnashing of teeth. Um, yeah, it's... God... I so, so desperately when we're talking about the most serious stuff, my brain goes to how do I make it funny? And this whole time I've been trying to find a, a quip about how, oh, so it sounds like this is a center that makes a pregnancy your own personal crisis. But, um, shh. but like this one isn't funny. This is horrifying no, and deeply upsetting. Yeah, it's. It's a waste of space, and it's a waste of resources. Sure. This is the last point that I wanted to touch on, but I, this is something that I, like, really only learned the extent about when I was researching for this topic. Under the Trump administration, there was a barring of federal funds from organizations that provide or even refer for abortions. That's on top of the fucking Hyde Amendment, which has been in place since 1980. And the Hyde Amendment is a goddamn abomination of American politics. Besides the point. They also gave a huge grant to a network of these motherfuckers. We are paying. We as taxpayers are paying to have pregnant people be lied to. And meanwhile, actual health care which abortion is, is not being covered in the way that it should be. I will never understand, and I grew up Catholic. I have the perspective. I will never understand the acceptability of funding these assholes, these centers, which have the explicit purpose of pushing an anti-abortion message, of marketing, of fucking marketing. I will never understand the ability to use federal funds for this shit, but we can't use it for pregnant people 
who don't want to or should not be pregnant anymore and are choosing not to be. It is the grossest ignoring of the First Amendment that I have probably seen. And I have watched the libertarian free speech debate. Hmm. But here we are where our government will privilege an anti-abortion message from religiously affiliated bigots. But we can't let a low-income person who can't afford a child get the health care that they need. Yeah, and I mean, the answer is cynical, but the key to understanding that is the people who are advocating for that, the people, the same people who are overturning Roe v. Wade after 50 years of having the ability to codify it and not, don't actually give a shit. Don't actually care beyond it is a talking point to draw up support for an issue with your voting block that you were either for or against it. It is the stepping stone for one's own political power to be able to make this an issue and gun control an issue and in climate change an issue. And in this specific case, it's the people who are bringing life into the world who are suffering the most and it's fucked. Yeah. I guess the point I want to end on is, um, you know, back during the uh, 2020 George Floyd protests, some people burned down some police stations. We should burn down some crisis pregnancy centers alongside those police stations. This is not a formal endorsement of any... uh... Illegal activity. It is, however, an informal one. Shall we move on to our question? <laughs> Let's talk about a boy and his dog. Oh, Jesus. All right, you read the format, so I'll do the question. All right. All right. This comes from our friends over at relationships.txt. This is a 23-year-old male uh, writing in regards to his 22-year-old female partner. I want you to think of this a fucking name as I read, Sandy. Oh my god. My girlfriend of four years released my dog while I was on a one-week business trip in Europe. On the fifth day of my business trip, my girlfriend called me saying someone opened the yard gate and the dog ran away. I was devastated as I had had, as I had, had the dog for five years since he was a puppy. I was so in shock and upset that I've had more than one person ask me... If I was, if something was up, because I couldn't stop thinking about my dog and looking depressed. I asked my girlfriend to put up lost dog signs with his picture and a $3,000 reward. When I came back, my dog was still gone and I was thinking he was dead the whole time. Two days after I came back, I get a call saying they found my dog and I was very excited and my girlfriend said she was happy too. But I knew that something was up when the vet called, when the vet that called me was 50 miles away. That's five zero. I drove up with my girlfriend and the vet said some old lady and her son found my dog on a trail and brought it to the vet. 
On the ride back, I was very suspicious of my girlfriend and accused her of releasing my dog. And she kept saying she didn't, and some people probably stole it and released it. She eventually starts crying and admits to driving up and releasing my dog. I'm angry at her and tell her how what she did was cruel, and I said I'm probably going to break up with her because she could have gotten my dog killed, especially because he is a Shiba Inu and looks like a coyote. Hmm. She then accuses me of giving the dog too much attention and not her, but I tell her if that was such a problem, she was free to leave without releasing my dog. I dropped her off and drove straight to a hotel that allows dogs with my dog and stopped responding to my girlfriend even though she keeps blowing up my phone and is trying to call me. I'm too much in shock to make any rational decision at this point because someone I loved for four years betrayed me terribly. (sighs) So Andy, I sent this to you and was like, here's an easy one. Yeah, right? (laughs) Let's start off with a name for our asker. This may be a little niche to most people, but I know at least one listener who should recognize the call out, call back. Um, there's a play called Dog Sees God. Jesus fucking Christ, Andy. And it is a edgy, dark, horrifically tragic Charlie Brown story yep. about like an a a 20-year-old Charlie Brown who has depression and Snoopy got rabies and died. And this story, to me, sounds like a alternate world of the one from Dog Sees God where Charlie Brown and Lucy get together and Lucy gets jealous and tries to drive Snoopy out 50 miles. I thought we were going to say Peppermint Patty, not Lucy, but okay. Peppermint Patty is not a lesbian in any dimension of the universe. Who said anything about Peppermint Patty being a lesbian other than Family Guy? (laughs) My headcanon, always. (laughs) Oh, God. All right, so we got Charlie Brown and Lucy? Yep. All right, I'm not even going to put, like, the title of this, because if you don't know who Charlie Brown is, you probably don't actually, like, are real. Also, there are no fewer than three Charlie Brown Peanuts movies, which are about Snoopy traveling across the country. Like this fucking dog did. I ought to slug you. Dog! I've been kissed by a dog! I have dog germs! Get hot water! Get some disinfectant! Get some iodine! Ah! Would you like to start, Andy? Holy shit, Charlie Brown. Like, good grief. Lucy, in every conceivable action here, is so fucking out of line. And I I hear you say you are in shock to make any rational decision at this point. But the rational decision is to fucking dump Lucy like a pack of flaming hot bricks. This is so clear cut. Like, I almost can't believe this. The insane entitlement. The gross jealousy of a dog. The lying. The attempted pet homicide. Ugh. 
This is so beyond fucked. There is no leg that Lucy can stand on. This is some truly heinous shit. I say that as a dog lover. I say that as a pet owner. That's right. You got a pet recently. I do. We got a cat. We got a sweet little kitty. Um, God, we, we have talked at length of the... And I think I kind of carry this torch more than anything about how there is like a set timeline in which it is more okay to end a relationship than not. And four years is a lot of time, but holy shit, dude. There is absolutely no guarantee that Lucy will not try to do this again or do something worse. This is the easiest question we've ever had. Charlie Brown needs to block Lucy's number, block her on social media, and leave a bag of flaming Snoopy shit on her door for the next six months. <laughs> uh, I agree with you, Andy. Like, the move here is breaking up with Lucy. Like, Charlie Brown, let's, let's be up front here. I know you don't want to make any rash decisions here. I know that it probably feels like a rash decision to leave your girlfriend at y'all's home and go to a hotel. You're probably stewing in a lot of emotion here. And you know what? There is an existing school of thought among some people where they kind of go, well, it's a dog. Is the dog worth ruining your relationship over? What did the dog do? Let me finish. All right. There are people who will have that school of thought. Those people are fucking wrong. I say this because I am familiar with... Andy, I love you. You're white. Sure. White people, in my experience, are mostly more attached to the oh. care and adoration of their pets Fair enough. than some people of color are. I say this because I have spoken to people of color who have either told me stories about relatives of theirs or have flat out told me themselves that they are like, yeah, no, it's a dog, who cares? It's a pet, who cares? Those same people, yeah. I'm gonna put this bluntly, disregard them. Because it's a, it's a different culture, it's a different generational situation for a lot of them. The point here is, what Lucy has said was her reasoning for this is unconscionable. If she felt like she wasn't getting enough attention, if she felt like you cared more about your dog than about her, that is something that she should have communicated to you and said, and basically said, hey, this is my perception. Maybe this is my shit. Maybe this is my insecurity. Maybe it's not. Either way, can we talk about it? And can we try and find an avenue here 
where we can where I cannot feel that way. Can you communicate your care for me in a way that will be impactful to me? Because I understand that this is your dog and your dog, while important to you and that being valid, is not necessarily more important than me as your girlfriend. Like there was an avenue for which you, if Lucy had written this question into us, and said, I feel like my boyfriend of four years cares more about his dog than about me. We would be sitting here giving Lucy advice about how to have that dialogue with you. Sure. Lucy didn't have a fucking dialogue. Lucy took your dog 50 miles away and fucking abandoned him. And I can't stress this enough for a five-year housebroken dog i don't care the breed doesn't matter that it's necessarily a she and although that is comparing it bringing up that it looks like a coyote is an added danger but even if it was like a fucking sheep dog the over under on that is that dog has no way of surviving in the wild on its own so the best case scenario was lucy was hoping that Grandma and little Billy would find the dog and take it in as their pet. Yeah, which, like, also, by the way, like, dogs are usually fucking microchipped, you dumb idiot. Like, mm. it's, it was... Charlie Brown, get the fuck away. Because the fact of the matter is, Lucy might have had a legitimate grievance, but the way that she handled this was so unacceptable that it is worth breaking up with her for. This was not okay. She took an innocent living organism, living being that mattered to you and went, rather than deal with communicating my feelings, I will endanger this innocent life form and hope that my boyfriend will get over his grief enough and pay attention to me. Fuck you, Lucy. Between this and um, either the last episode or the one before, the mother who demanded gifts from her children every birthday, um, every child's birthday, there are some fucked up people out there. I just... I. If you know a fucked up person... <laughs> Hopefully, it's not as fucked up as this situation, but maybe you do, and maybe you don't know what to do about them, and maybe you want to ask us our perfectly unqualified advice, or maybe you have a more sane, nuanced question. Maybe maybe you're finding yourself as a Lucy, and it's, it's not a dog, but it's video games, or it's not a dog, but it's, it's the, your partner's parental figure. I don't know. There's a million different variables you could come in and ask us. And no matter what they are, we promise to give our perfectly unqualified advice as long as you send those in to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. And we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. You can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, 
where we tweet about random shit that we've largely already talked about. Uh, this is our 91st episode, so sure we have is. a good 90 loves, roughly 90 loves, roughly 90 hates, minus the triples. What are you going to do? Um, where we're just going to reference shit, and that's just how life is. You can also DM us your questions there. Um, or send us, you know, relationships.txt shit or am I the asshole shit or anything you want our commentary on. Oh, yeah. We'll take it all. Yeah, we take all comers. Yeah. You can find me, Andy Bowell, at jovocop2113 on Twitter. You can check out what uh, little models I'm building and painting at... I. Yeah at Andy's underscore minis on Twitter. And you can follow my other show, Cult Fiction, where I watch cult movies with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also find that podcast everywhere you can find this show. That's right. No, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and LiChess and Chess.com at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies. Mm-hmm.